Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, talks about the latest vaccine and market developments with Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, and Mike Haslam, Investment Funds Manager, followed by a discussion on women in business and investing with Juliet Goldman, Head of Strategic and External Engagement, and Ian Elwood, Head of Fund Selection. Hello, welcome to Word on the Street. We've got a really busy episode this week. Lots of great guests to talk about a number of things, including, of course, what's been going on in markets. So Will will help with that. Uh, We're also going to hear about what fund managers have been doing, reacting to those movements. And we're also going to hear from a very special guest, Juliet Goldman, who's our head of external engagement, and also Ian Elwood, who's our, our leader of the funds business on women in investing in business, clearly a really important topic. So let's first delve into markets. What on earth has been going on, Will? I was thinking of analogies I've had to describe this week. And in, in my head, uh, I'm afraid it, it kind of sporting analogies are the best way to think about it. It's always a mistake. And you always tell me this to dump what's in my head straight onto this uh, podcast without filter. But for much of my formative years, Australia were unbeaten at cricket or unbeatable at cricket, at least for the English cricket side. Uh, and Germany were unbeatable at football. There were obvious kind of nadirs, you know, Australia Australia briefly forced England into four captaincy changes uh, in the summer of 88, which was... Um, a miserable time for me and everyone else who follows cricket and German victories in the you know penalty shootouts of 90, 1990 and 96 are obviously seared into the national psyche and uh, even embalmed in, in a Pizza Hut advert. However, there came a moment in those sagas when the depressing reality shifted, uh, at least for English you know, football and, and, and cricket fans. 2005 Ashes was a moment of pure perfection for all English and Welsh cricket fans. Australia could be beaten and Belgium 2000. And the European Championship was the moment for English football fans of a certain sort of generation who realised that Germany could be beaten. And I guess what I'm trying to say in a very roundabout way is that this that was this week when we had the first reasonably concrete evidence that COVID-19 could be beaten, which means something. And that 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 sort of explains a lot about how markets responded in such extraordinary fashion. And well done. That that sounded like a really good pitch for being picked up by a sporting podcast. <laughs> let, let us know how you get on. <laughs> so obviously, investors were trying to work out what the implications are for potentially having a vaccine. We obviously had the US elections as well. Big news. But as you and JP have pointed out in, in the podcast that, that was uh, published earlier this week, the good news comes with sort of plenty of caveats for now. So in that context, did, did the scale of the market reaction surprise you or, or is that just a function of how hopeful and desperate we all are? No, I think I think you know. I go back to that sporting analogy. That kind of that kind of explains the scale of the reaction in a sense. This was a kind of a moment when the reality changed, and I think you know, it, like you say, there are lots of caveats to this uh, to this situation. There's much more we'll know, and 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 or hopefully know in the coming weeks. And we hear more from some of the other vaccine candidates. You know, the front runners, uh, Moderna is one mm-hmm. where it's, you know is about a week behind the Pfizer vaccine in terms of releasing data. So we'll hear some efficacy data literally, you know, any minute now from them. And then the other vaccines, we'll hear more towards the end of the year. So this is a really important change potentially. But like I say, it does come with caveats, and I think that's an important. 
sort of, you know, dampener to sort of say, look, you know, we're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination. So even in the face of seemingly worse incoming news on on the path of the pandemic at the moment in, in much of the world, the outlook for the world economy is potentially could be quite a lot better given the news we've had this week. Is is that the right kind of stance to take? Yeah, you're right on all of that, of course. It, it's an extremely complex outlook at the moment. When you think of all the things going on, you know, the aftermath of a US elections where the you know, the destination of legislative power is still not certain and will not be known until mm-hmm. January, everything that's going on in the on, on, on in the pandemic. But yes, I think you're right. You know, the outlook for the world economy is materially brighter than it was last week on the news that we have, on the information we have right now. And that explains why you saw that, you know, explosive rotation uh, into some of the least popular parts of the, you know, the capital markets and out of some of the most popular uh, and why you saw assets, you know, for the most part, incorporate that sunnier outlook for growth and inflation for the world into their valuations. Great point to bring Mike in. So, so Mike, given these market moves, as Will said, an explosive rotation, typically, these times tend to be when active managers really either make or break their their reputations. What were you seeing? Yes, indeed. What a week, huh? Um, so all year we've we've seen the share price of those companies which have benefited from the global pandemic rise. So companies like Netflix, Amazon, Zoom, really good examples. Uh, those those sorts of companies have done really well, and those companies that are struggling haven't done so well. So that's companies in sectors such as airlines hotels, restaurants, tourism, and so on. But this week, the news that we could have an effective vaccine earlier than anticipated may, maybe, maybe life will return to some kind of normality soon. And life for the airline companies maybe get back to some kind of normality and the hotels and the restaurants and so on. And as a result, share prices of those companies rocketed this week. Yeah, Mike, I guess that stands to reason. What what about some... um Sorry about jumping in here, but we'll give us some examples. Yeah, sure. I'll mention a few names here. Um, certainly, any company that I mentioned today is not a recommendation to buy or sell those shares. Just examples. Where should we start? Um, let's start with airlines. They're, they're taking the headlines um, in the press. It's an obvious industry that that could potentially re- rebound pretty quickly if we all feel easier about traveling again. So, for example, shares in EasyJet took off on Monday. Sorry, Will. Terrible pun there. What else have we got? We have SSP Group, maybe not a household name. It's a UK company, and they operate thousands of those food and coffee outlets at railway stations and airports. So when you turn up at King's Cross, you queue up and grab a coffee and a croissant, you'll see their names there, uh, names such as Upper Crust, probably recognize that one, Cafe Ritaza. If there's a Starbucks on the station, it will probably be a franchise operated by SSP. If there's a Burger King, another franchise operated by SSP. However, the monumental collapse in number of people traveling this year has simply meant a collapse in sales. Therefore, share prices plummeted. However, if a vaccine comes to market quickly and if the world gets back to some kind of normality and if people start traveling again, they'll be back at King's Cross. They'll be buying the coffee and the croissants from SSP again. And on Monday, the news the news of the vaccine coming out, that gave a massive caffeine boost to the share price of SSP. But remember as well, if a share price can go up significantly in one day, there's nothing to say that it, uh, uh, that it can continue like that and it may well give all that back the next day. So be warned here. One other example, uh, let's stick with the travel. If more people are traveling, they will be using online 
booking websites to book their tickets, no doubt, I do. So this week, we saw the share price, for example, of Trainline checking a massive gain on Monday this week. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the question for me on these kind of things, all these kind of, uh, all those people up in, the, up in the macro clouds, as they call it, but, you know, what we worry about is, you know, how much kind of permanent damage has been done to these companies by the, by the pandemic? Yeah, really good question. And that's what our active fund managers have been spending the last few months working out. They're looking at each individual company and sector and industry that has been hit by the, by the pandemic and trying to understand how each of the individual companies will emerge, if they do, out of the other end. So let me give you an example. National Express, so another UK company whose shares did really well earlier this week, we all know the company by its coaches that stream up and down the motorways and the various rail franchises that they've had in the UK over the years. But like any other company in the travel industry, shares have been hit hard this year. However, once you start looking closely at the company, you realise that the UK only makes up 20% of the business. Here's an interesting fact. They are the largest operator of school buses in the US. And during periods, during the summer, early summer, when schools in the US were closed, 60% of those schools were still paying National Express to operate the buses, even though they weren't running. Also as well, worth remembering that there are something like 11,000 school bus operators in the US. Not all of them will survive. And who knows, maybe National Express will take market share from those. This is the sort of thing that our fund managers are doing, trying to work out if companies like National Express will actually emerge from the pandemic fitter and stronger than ever before. So, does I mean, does that mean that have you seen, you know, any of the fund managers that we cherry pick to to, to manage our, you know, our, our clients' uh, precious money? Have they been piling into these companies? Piling in? No, certainly not. But I think what this week has reminded us of is that share prices can overshoot to the upside and overshoot on the downside. So I mentioned the company SSP, whose shares jumped up in value on Monday this week. Does that mean that the company is suddenly worth considerably more than it was just the day before? Maybe, maybe not. The share price still needs to double in price before it gets back to anywhere near where it was at the beginning of the year. So does that mean that they're really cheap? I don't know. But then again, you know, when you think about it, will we ever be traveling again like we were before in the, in the numbers on trains and planes? So you know, will, will we ever return to any kind of normality? Or maybe the vaccine will take longer to come to market. Does that mean then that the shares in SSP are overvalued? Who knows? But that's this is what our active managers have been doing all day. They're looking at companies like SSP, National Express, etc., to understand how they will emerge from the pandemic. Will they emerge stronger and fitter? Will they be taking market share from the rivals who have possibly fallen at the way, wayside? Or will they fail to emerge at all? So it's not about piling into all of these companies. It's about having a little bit. So for every bit that you have in maybe Netflix and Amazon, potentially within portfolios, having a little bit in the National Express, the um, SSPs, etc. Again, I'm not in any way recommending those stocks to listeners. These are just examples. But as always, will all roads, as you know, lead to a diversified portfolio. Quite right. almost sounds like you've been listening to the podcast, Mike. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. There fascinating stuff uh, going on this week. Uh, and sorry, Nikki, I, I diverged a little bit, stole the conversation, but um, it's just so interesting to hear from Mike what our uh, fund managers have been doing in amongst all of this. Uh, but with that, I'll, I'll pass back to you. Great. So turning to you, Juliet, it's lovely to have you on with us. But can you start just by telling us a little bit about what the Investing in Women Code is and, and perhaps why Barclays signed up to it? Absolutely. So it was actually it was established by the Treasury 
who were really interested in the issues facing female entrepreneurs. And that, that led to the Rose Review, which, which highlighted a, a massive opportunity. So should women start and scale businesses at the same rate of men, it would produce an additional £250 billion opportunity for the UK economy. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> quite. As you can imagine, yeah. I got the Treasury very excited. So they wanted to understand how they could help the industry address some of the challenges that they faced. So some of the main challenges were around access to finance, the, the fact that women still take on the majority of responsibility when it comes to family care. Uh, and then also a, a big point around access to skills. So women are more likely to value things like networking, mentoring, but actually have less access to them. So they, they came up with this code to try and spur the industry into action, but also to try and foster greater transparency when it comes to women in business. And I think it's, it's acknowledged, you know, there are these big structural differences. It, it, it's not going to change overnight. So I think it's really important that there is a collective effort across the industry to recognise the, the challenges women face and, and try and help address them. So that's broadly speaking about the, the code, but in terms of why Barclay signed up, I mean, I, I, I see it as it's, it's a moral imperative, you know, it's, it's the right thing to do, but it also just makes good business sense. You know, if we can help more women achieve their ambitions and, and if we can serve these businesses better, then, then everyone wins. And you mentioned there about differences between perhaps male-led versus female-led businesses. Can, can you just share with us, you know, have you discovered that? Have you seen that? Can you share with the listeners what kinds of differences might have been identified? Absolutely. I mean, so for, for Barclays business, we serve over a million small businesses in the UK, and it's been absolutely fascinating to, to look at the impact of gender on these businesses. And many differences do exist. I mean, for starters, there are just far fewer of them. There are far fewer women that start and, and run their businesses. But then also when we look into the issue of what businesses they start up, um, you know, they tend to be in very different sectors. So probably not a surprise, but there are far fewer women in agriculture than there are men. But there are far more in, say, retail and, and hospitality. But it goes beyond just the types of businesses. We, we also know that there are differences in things like attitude to finance. So I know this was one of the main areas of focus from the Treasury's perspective. But when we started to look into it, it was really interesting that the, the main difference was actually in how many women were applying for finance rather than in how many were actually getting that finance. And, and indeed, some, you know, on, on the whole, women were actually slightly more successful in terms of approval rates. But actually, the, the big difference was in how many actually sought finance and we did a lot of additional research to try and get under the skin of these issues, you know, find out what the real drivers were. And th th there were many, but I think just picking on a few, I think the theme of confidence came throughout, you know, there was real self-doubt about dealing with the responsibility that they felt not just for their business, but potential impacts onto families about whether they wanted to make that step and leap and start the business, but also on how best to grow it. I think there was a really interesting area around the the knowledge gap. And I would actually say this is more of a perceived necessarily than an actual one. Um, but women just, they want more information. They want more, better education and, and, and more knowledge to make more informed decisions. But I think the other, the flip side was just how passionate women were about their businesses. You know, they have that drive and dedication gave them a huge sense of achievement. And I think another theme that came out was there's often a focus on delivering broader societal benefits. You know, we know that women are far more likely to actually start up social businesses as well. So really interesting differences, both in sort of what, how and, and why they, they start businesses. Fascinating. Given given the research that, that you and the team have done, I mean, 
Are you able to see perhaps through the pandemic, have you seen any kind of difference between how that has impacted, say, you know, female run businesses versus male or, or those business owners themselves? Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's been hard. It, it's been hard for all businesses a, a, across the mm. world. But for, from what we can see, women have been hit harder. The businesses, when we look at it on a, on a gender basis, they, they have been hit harder and recovering slower. And, you know, I think there are a few reasons for this. One is that the sectors that they're in have been hit harder. You know, I, I said that they mentioned there was a sector skew, but if we go back to that, if there are far more in, in retail and hospitality, those are the industries right. that have been had the you know greatest impact by lockdown. And again, there are fewer, fewer in agriculture, which has been less impacted. So I think that that's one of the big drivers. But I think undoubtedly, and something that obviously doesn't come through our data, but you, you can see with your eyes and your ears, but the, the fact that childcare has obviously been a, a really big factor. And, you know, much research has been done showing that during lockdown, you know, there was a reversion with women picking up more of the childcare responsibilities. You know, this is normally the point my toddler comes in demanding a snack to really <laughs> hammer home that point. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we also, we've um, partnered with the Entrepreneurs Network and they put out um, through their Female Founders Forum, which is a great forum. Any female businesses, please do look it up when you, you get in touch with them. But they released a, a fascinating report looking at the progress of female entrepreneurs. And they, they picked out a great quote, which is that during lockdown, husbands typically got the home office and women got the kitchen table. Uh, and I just thought oh, that really kind of <laughs> brings to light the, the issues that they face, you know, who's going to be more disturbed in, in that setup. Yeah, It's not all, all doom and gloom. You know, there are some really great stories out there of, of brilliant, resilient female entrepreneurs building very successful businesses, even through this trying time. And you mentioned there about help to reach out, out to, but, but just maybe you could uh, bring to life a little bit about what, you know, you and the team and Barclays as a whole is doing to better support female entrepreneurs so those those that have got off and running you know what what are we doing to help them absolutely we, we we're doing we're doing lots and we recognize this isn't going to change overnight so we put together uh, a series of three-year commitments to provide ongoing and, and meaningful support for female entrepreneurs so um, we're making various pledges. So one is that we are going to be helping 100,000 women across the UK to start up and run businesses. We're also looking to connect female-led businesses with the finance and support that they need to succeed. And then lastly, we'll be providing skills for this generation and the next to help them into entrepreneurship. So that point about sort of breaking down some of those cultural uh, and aspirational barriers and, and making uh, the next generation realise that entrepreneurialism is a, is a route for them. So th there's lots of activity we have planned. I mean, underneath all of that, we're going to be doing big programmes to train up more of our colleagues. We're going to be delivering uh, 100 diversity champions across the UK and the ground to, to help female businesses access the, the tools and support that they need. We're doing a whole host of uh, educations and, and skills piece, uh, you know, eventually we'll all get back to seeing each other face to face. But in the meantime, lots <laughs> will be delivered virtually, uh, as well as uh, delivering accelerators through our Eagle Labs network as well, which are more sort of dedicated programs to get um, scale ups access to the, to the finance that they need. So lots of support going on out there. Please do look at our uh, Women in Business Hub if you Google Barclays Women in Business, you'll find it. Um, and that will be kept up to date with all of the latest tools, support, guidance events that we have um, running through Barclays Business. Sounds amazing, Juliet. Really, really great to hear all those routes that, that people with 
with great ideas and and just just seeking that bit of support, whether it's for feeling a bit more confident about their knowledge base, but equally some real practical support as well to to get going and, and maybe not having to rely purely on getting a slot on the apprentice as as the means to <laughs> to getting there's your business going. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like there's plenty more. So that's great. And and Ian, good time here to to turn to you. We've talked, we've had you on the podcast before talking about ESG, um, so governance, stewardship, environmental uh, focus. We've talked about impact investing as well. So so investing with a view to having having a, a positive societal outcome as well as a financial return. But but just given the theme of our podcast today, can you maybe share a little bit about in corporate governance and and stewardship? How is that evolving as you see it in in the fund management firms that that you're talking to that that you're researching for selecting funds in our in our universe of, of preferred funds yeah absolutely hi nikki there really have been massive changes in recent years now these have been prompted by a, a host of factors regulations client expectations and indeed shifts in societal expectations to mention just just three it really will be exceptional at larger firms nowadays not to see an individual at board level or perhaps one step below being responsible for corporate governance and stewardship. ESG or environmental, social and governance considerations are absolutely incorporated within leading fund management groups nowadays. Examples include everything from the recycling of rainwater at the headquarters to gen- under, the, under the, you know, the environmental E gender diversity um, and stewardship activities under the social S, you know, right through to board composition and pay under the governance G. And the groups then report on these metrics and a number of businesses such as MSCI or Sustainalytics then collate and track these metrics to hold the firms accountable. Now, frequently, there is an entire team in place looking at these issues at the fund management groups as they pertain to companies uh, when investing their clients' assets as well. And given we've been talking about uh, female entrepreneurs um, and so, you know, gender equality, how, how does that manifest itself with the fund management companies? What are you seeing in terms of their initiatives around gender diversity? Mm. So, you know, these businesses themselves need to reflect the standards that they in turn expect of the companies into which they are considering investing. Right. So just as they assess investee companies for their embedment of ESG, so they themselves have to be seen to be embedding ESG as a business. And of course, as you say, you know, diversity and inclusion is absolutely one of those considerations. So examples of what we see begin even before staff join the fund management firms with, for example, recruitment processes that aim to ensure a diverse range of candidates. Examples include not just recruiting from certain universities, or with certain types of backgrounds, also training on un- unconscious bias, um, and, and additionally, you know, ensuring representative shortlists for roles. Similarly, internships are increasingly common. That's um, you know whereby a diverse range of students or pupils can benefit from a stint in the workplace prior to joining the world of work full time. Furthermore, once in in businesses, many firms have mentoring programs in place, and indeed reverse mentoring programs in place or development courses specifically for females. 
Later on in careers, the ability to share parental leave has certainly been highlighted within fund management companies. Similarly, programs to assist uh, women with returning to work, having had a career break, you know, sometimes that's you know, to raise children, have increased. And something else we've seen amongst the listed firms is a huge step up in reporting. You know, with fund managers' annual financial statements, often is now very detailed um, statistics and percentages on employees segmented by gender, ethnicity, age, etc., against against grade, etc. And of course, as the quote goes, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And perhaps just to give a, an example to finish with, I can think of one firm we use that has a female um, founder of the fund management business. She, she founded that firm over 20 years ago. It's called Payden and Rigel, and, and the lady's name was Joan Payden. But when she founded that firm, she felt that you know, as, a, as a female founding it on her own, the name wouldn't just wouldn't seem appropriate. And so she added a fictitious partner, Mr. Ray Get Rigel, who never existed. <laughs> True story. Amazing. Well, it obviously worked 20 years later. Indeed. Yes. Raised billions into the firm as well in fixed income in particular. Fantastic. And... You know, I wonder, Ian, if, if you've got any other examples that you that you want to share around how fund managers are incorporating diversity as a whole into their investment process and their teams. Firstly, turning to the to the teams themselves, I think there are sort of two idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies of this industry, you know, besides the general diversity topics that I mentioned earlier. So the fund management industry sets a lot of store by the performance track records of individual fund managers you know they analyze those to the nth degree they follow them the fund managers from firm to firm throughout their career yet if an individual takes parental leave you know this track record takes a notable gap and that can result in in a penalty to their investment performance similarly parents often value flexible working patterns perhaps fitting around you know fitting in around a school school pickup or drop off and in an industry where company results and news are typically released around 7 a.m and the markets don't close until 4.30 p.m., you know, that, that's, that, you know that's, that's really challenging. And where, you know, given the inherent dynamism of corporate developments and market news, you know, even just a few months off per parental leave can leave the individual out of touch. And that, that makes, you know, historically has made those absences, you know, harder to deal with. That said, I'm pleased to say that the industry has certainly responded positively. You know, slowly but surely, for example, the star fund manager culture has faded. A co-PM structure has become more common, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons, not least succession planning. You know, and, and similarly, you know, should a parent arrive in the office after school drop-off, all eyes no longer turn turn to the clock. And performance, yeah. you know, performance differences and performance track records, sorry, can certainly be adjusted now for periods of, of regional absence. And clearly, you know, there is an onus on us as well as fund buyers to set expectations for those fund management groups and recognise appropriate behaviours. Maybe just a word on the on the second element of, of the investment process. You know, absolutely now as part of the S, the social S within the ESG, all fund managers incorporate that into their approaches now. They'll question company boards of their investing firms on topics such as diversity, gender diversity, labor relations, etc. And these are you know well documented, incorporated into the risks and overall assessment when they are buying or indeed holding a, a stock or a bond. Yeah, and I, and I know you've spoken in the past about your your process, the famous five Ps, but but that people part of it, what you were talking there about uh, star managers being less of the draw that they once were. You know, I I, I know 
from you know how you've spoken to us in the past around that being you know really looking into the team and ensuring that there is business continuity management and that there is there is more than just one key person which speaks somewhat to the ability to incorporate diversity and inclusion much more into into these businesses and and what about Barclays I mean what what would you say there about our ability to to incorporate that into our process and, and team structure so as you say our manager selection framework has five key elements and they all happen to start with the letter P one day Nikki I will get on this podcast and not address them piecemeal but for now <laughs> the six the six um, key <laughs> piecemeal yes <laughs> no pun intended but as you say it's really the, the the parent p and the people p those two areas where you know these issues come come into our into our focus within the parent area we have a, a subscore of culture and transparency and there are subscores under each of these and within that we will absolutely um, assess many of the factors I've spoken about earlier, such as the attitudes of the fund management firm, the diversity that we see in the fund management firm. Within the people area, then the people P, we do explicitly look at the diversity of the fund management team, that, that investment desk in particular. And we recognise the value of diversity of thought when assessing investment opportunities. To give an example, you know, turning the lens on my team here at Barclays, you know, my, chi- my Chinese female 20-something year old colleague will likely bring a very different perspective to assessing fund X or fund manager Y to that of a Spanish male 40 something colleague on the team. You know, and that has to be a good thing. It makes for, for better mm. decision making, right? When we assess fund managers, we send an initial fact finding questionnaire to them, and that includes explicit questions relating to diversity and inclusion. When we interview them, as, as of course we do, we meet them face-to-face, even if that's over Zoom these days, then we discuss these issues face-to-face. We also subscribe to an ESG database on Morningstar Direct, and that captures all manner of of diversity and inclusion metrics for thousands of firms worldwide. And that that really helps us when we interrogate our existing and uh, potential managers. Um, Furthermore, we, we do try to report on this. A good example is some of the diversity scoring and metrics that are contained within the last annual report for our ESG fund here at Barclays called the Multi-Impact Growth Fund. Finally, by way of a, of a live example perhaps, we currently have a UK equity fund on our buy list where one of the two PMs, it's a co-PM model for managers, is on parental leave. She's recently had a baby, but taking on board all of what we've spoken about here, you know, we remain happy holders of that fund. Over this period, safe in the knowledge that the co-PM who has worked with that lady for many years is successfully holding the fort. That's, that's, That's not to say, though, there isn't still a way to go. As the female fund managers on my team reminded me when I asked them for their views ahead of this podcast, it is still common, particularly for, for, for bond teams, fixed income teams in particular, to see no female members um, whatsoever. So it sounds like a, 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 joint, a partnership here with Juliet's World, helping encourage more uh, female activity, whether it's entrepreneurship or, or in business as a whole. And, and of course, mm. us, the, the push and pull of, of you know, where we deploy our, our clients and our customers' investment funds, but, but equally what we, what we do in our own shop to try to attract certainly 
a, a greater diversity of, of all types of people, but, but, at, but at every level of the organisation. So really fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Juliet, for, for joining us this first time. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much to Ian for, for coming back. Thank you. And we, we definitely will do a, a five P's special and, and, be, and be true to our word. And thank you, Will, for, for your insights as always. Speak to you next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.